0: You guys can, uh, if you have a Bible, turn it to Matthew chapter 12, and of course remain standing in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21 today, 15 through 21, moving right along in Matthew chapter 12. This is what God's Word says. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed Him and He healed them all and ordered them not to make Him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, My servant, whom I have chosen, My beloved, with whom My soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is God's Word. You guys can have a seat. When you study the Bible and you read the Bible, and, and especially if you get to interact with many non Christians in the world, or even people who profess to be Christians but maybe hold to a very uh, liberal, worldly view of Scripture, and, and hopefully in that you'll be spurred on to study and to to kind of understand how to defend your faith, to be able to give a a reasonable (laughs) defense for the hope that is in you. As you go through these things, one of the things that you're going to find and one of the most fascinating and one of the most clear evidences of the inspiration of Scripture and the expiration of Scripture, that it is not only inspired by God, but it is actually expired. It is His, His breath. One of the things that is the... One of the greatest evidences of that is the reality that throughout His earthly life, beginning with his, his place of birth, His birth, His life, His earthly ministry, His death, His resurrection, throughout all of these things, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, fulfills many Old Testament prophecies that were written hundreds of years before He was ever born. Um, and that's just fascinating. Um, you could go home and just Google the, 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 um, the statistics on what it would take for one man to fulfill these prophecies, and many of you have probably heard them. Um, but, but the statistics of just fulfilling, I think, eight prophecies are just mind-boggling. When, in fact, Jesus fulfills over 300 prophecies, prophesied hundreds of years before His birth, and that's just amazing. That, that's astonishing. That should blow our minds when we realize and we, we see these places in Scripture like we're going to read today where the writers say, see, He fulfills the prophecy. That's what we're, we're looking at. And, and, and when we, we think of this concept, we need to remember that God did not begin His redemptive plan with the birth of Jesus. and And God's work in human history did not begin with Matthew's Gospel, or, or that blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bible. Hebrews 1.1 says, Yes, in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. But before that, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. And God had been speaking for hundreds and hundreds of years, revealing Himself for, for literally thousands of years before... Jesus comes on the scene. The New Testament, I believe, makes little sense without the Old Testament. Now, most of us come from some sort of a a biblical background, at least maybe some understanding of, of Christianity, and so we might not understand that the New Testament makes no sense without the Old Testament, or that the Old Testament is completely insufficient apart from the New Testament. But when you hear things like Jesus died for our sins, you have to understand that makes no sense apart from what the Old Testament teaches us about God and about His His wrath and about how He feels about sin. So we have to have the Old Testament. It's very important that we understand that God has been working in human history long before Jesus comes on the scene. And I've had people ask me, you know, when you're reading the Bible, where should you start? Where would you tell a new Christian to start? And most people say, start in the Gospel of John. That's what most people recommend. When I read the Gospel of John, I think this is so deep and so theologically and doctrinally rich, why would I ever send any new Christian to read in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became... That's deep. What I tell people, start in Genesis. Don't start with Jesus. Start with Adam. It's going to take a long time and it's going to be hard and you're going to have to really prayerfully read slowly through Scripture, but start at the beginning of the story because the New Testament doesn't make any sense without the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, you will see when you begin to read, you find that it is completely insufficient without the New Testament. Like I've heard people say, the church didn't begin with Billy Graham, although in America we, we seem to have that concept. There's, there's hundreds and thousands of years of history to get us to this point. Now this would be true even more so for the Jewish readers of Matthew's Gospel and the, the Jews that lived in Jesus' day. You know, remember, as individuals, they had this thick and rich history of God speaking to their forefathers, through the prophets and so Matthew is writing to Jewish people predominantly and so when Matthew alludes to an Old Testament writing, when Matthew says this was to fulfill what, the, what was spoken by the prophet or when Matthew says as it is written, the Jewish ears would have perked up because they were consumed with the Scriptures. They they knew the Scriptures. They were very religious people. And so when Matthew, in his Gospel, as he's writing, when when he comes in with these things where he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, or this is he of whom it is written. When you read those things, this is like Matthew's right hook. For the Jewish ears, they would have turned it on and they would have said, okay, this is where we need to really dissect this and listen to what he's saying and so often in Matthew's Gospel, he references the Old Testament. And when he does, he's showing there are thousands of years of history that were actually pointing to Jesus. And without Jesus, this man, they're empty. They have no value. The Old Testament is completely pointless to the, 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 the Orthodox Jews today who still hold to the, the old what we would call the Old Testament, the Tanakh. When they read that collection of writings, they're still awaiting a Messiah. They have, they, they, they're still looking for something because it's empty without Jesus. So in these preceding sections in Matthew chapter 12, we have read two stories of opposition. The Pharisees have come at Jesus with opposition concerning His actions. And then we have read how Jesus answers them. And today we're going to look at how He physically responds to that opposition. Now there's a very short, from Matthew, a very short explanation of how Jesus responded and then a long account of how this fulfills prophecy. Because remember, Matthew's Jewish, so he doesn't care so much that what, where Jesus went or what Jesus did. Matthew just wants you to know he left and this was to fulfill prophecy. And this is... As we read through this passage, this is one of those passages that we could literally spend months studying the Old Testament significance of of all that Matthew's saying. This is a a storehouse of riches that we could just just dig in and chew on and and spend a lot of time here. Um, I had planned on covering this whole section just today, and then as I began to to get my notes mapped out, I decided not to do this whole section today. We'll, We'll break it up into two different weeks. But what we're going to see is that the glory of Jesus is displayed when we read these prophecies. And this this glory is simply stunning. When we read these things and we really begin to comprehend what Matthew is saying and what Isaiah was saying and what God was saying through Isaiah, we should then be able to say, hallelujah, what a Savior we have. That that He is, is described this way, prophesied to be this way, comes and lives His life and is actually living this way, and He's our Savior. And we with the Apostle Paul would say that we preach Christ. And this is an opportunity where we just get to, to look at Jesus. And, and Matthew does too. He takes this opportunity to just preach Christ. In Matthew's Gospel, so far we've read such titles as the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel 7. We've read titles such as Son of David, which references Jewish history. It implies royalty, regality, sovereign rule. We've seen him referred most often or many times as just the Christ or Jesus Christ, implying his anointing from God the Father. Now, all of these are correct. He is the Son of Man, He is the Son of David, and He is the Christ. But when we read these titles, we take from them something different than the average Jew would have taken in this time period. They had their own idea of what it meant to be the Son of Man, or the Son of David, or, or the Christ, the Messiah. And so Matthew also takes this time to use the Old Testament prophecies, especially this one, to remind his readers of Jesus' role as the servant of God. And this is a role that most of the Jews would have overlooked. This was the role that caused most of the stumbling for the Jewish people because they looked for a master, not a maid. They were looking for a a lion, not a lamb. They were awaiting and still are awaiting a sovereign, not a servant. That's not what they were looking for. And so when Jesus comes... He doesn't look like what they thought. And the irony of this is that the beauty of Christ, the beauty of Jesus, is that He is both. He fulfills both of these roles perfectly, fully in Himself. And this is a part of His glory. Again, if you have time and you're, you're on the internet and want something to read, you can find public domain um, sermons. Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan, preached a sermon called The Excellencies of Christ. And what he did... He went to Revelation 5 and he talked about how there's the the Lion of Judah and then John says he looked and what he saw with his eyes was not a lion but was a lamb as though it had been slain. And Edwards takes this idea of the lion and the lamb to completely different extremes and he expounds how Christ fulfills these great extremes. He, He reaches to the highest of highs but also the lowest of lows. He's both and. He is the lion and the lamb and this is a part of His excellency. The Jews would stumble over this whereas we worship because we see that He is both of these things. And so we cannot overlook Christ as the servant. To overlook Christ as the servant and especially the suffering servant is to miss Christ. So let's move the exposition now, and I'm going to begin in verse 15. And I'm going to do this with the help of Mark's gospel, because, especially these first three verses, or first two verses, because Mark goes into a much more detail. Mark gives us six verses about what happened when Jesus left, whereas Matthew gives us um, basically two. So verse 15, at the beginning, we see Jesus responding physically to the Pharisees. It says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Now, when it says He's aware of this, that is what we just read. The Pharisees, in their anger, had left. It says they went out, so they left the synagogue, and conspired against Him how to destroy Him. And Jesus was aware of this. He is fully man, but He is also fully God. He is divine. He is deity. John 2, the end of John chapter 2, tells us that He does not need anybody to tell Him what's going on inside of our minds because He knows what is in man. And so that's what's happening. He knows exactly where they're going. He knows what they're thinking and what they're going to plan to do. And and so He is aware of what's happening and He withdrew from this place, from the synagogue. Rather than stay and instigate a problem or or wait for them to come back with another charge. He just left, as was his custom. When you read throughout the Gospels, whenever situations would get hairy, when people would get angry, he would oftentimes just slip away. And so he withdrew from there, and it says, and many followed him. Now in Mark's Gospel, he tells us that there were people from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Idumea, from Tyre, and from Sidon. All these different places, people had come to follow Jesus. There were crowds with Him all the time, everywhere He went. And this would have only added to the fuel of the Pharisees' anger. Remember, they're mad because people are are following Jesus. It's a power struggle. It's about authority. It's about um, celebrity. It's about people listening to, to this teacher or that teacher. And so when all these people are following Jesus, of course, this just adds to their anger. So all these people are following Him. And it says, and He healed them all. That is, not necessarily every single person. I don't think we have to assume that every person that followed Him needed to be healed. But all of those who were, were sick, or, or um, one from, or of all of the different cases, He, he healed people. Again, this is still the Sabbath. So his statements that we studied last week about how it's lawful to get on the Sabbath, he continues this idea. He continues to heal people. He's not afraid to to continue and, and do good on the Sabbath. And Mark 3 again tells us that with these people healing him, there were so many people, such a crowd, they were pressing around him about to crush him. He had to get into a boat because they were about to crush him. So that's the scene here. He's withdrawn. He's left. Mark says he's departed towards the sea and he gets into a boat because they're about to crush him. He's healing them all. Verse 16 says, and ordered them not to make him known. Jesus orders these people to keep his identity concealed. He doesn't want to reveal His true identity. Now, again, you go back to Mark's Gospel and you read that as He's healing people, He's casting out demons. And these demons are causing these people to fall prostrate before Jesus and and call Him the Son of God. You are the Son of God. And so, they would have been saying this. The people around would have heard what was being said. And so Jesus commands them, do not let people know who I am. He's, He's trying to conceal His identity and we've we've seen this already before, His time had not yet come. Jesus has a particular mission in His earthly ministry. He wasn't going out and holding large evangelistic rallies. He He doesn't come with a shirt that says Messiah. He doesn't come proclaiming who He is. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and He's on a very specific ministry and it's not time for everyone to know His full identity yet. And so He has... Those who are around Him, He commands them to keep it quiet. This is a good reminder that Jesus' ministry, His earthly ministry, does not, did not and does not set the pattern for all of our ministry. To assume that whatever Jesus' ministry looked like is what our ministry is supposed to look like, is to miss out on the fact that Jesus was doing something very special. He had much bigger purposes in mind than just getting people saved. So, you know, Jesus would preach on the side of a mountain. That doesn't mean we go preach on the side of a mountain. Jesus walked around everywhere He went with 12 men following. That doesn't mean we walk around with 12 men following us. He had a very specific mission. And here, we read again and we find out it's just it's not time for His identity to be made known. And so He commands them to keep it quiet. Orders them not to make Him known. Then we pick up verse 17 and Matthew, narrating this story, comes in as as an expositor to help the reader understand why Jesus would do this. Because a reader of Matthew's gospel story might say, well, if Jesus was the Christ, if He really is who you say He was, why would He not just tell everybody? And so Matthew has to say, here's why. Here's why He's concealing it, to fulfill prophecy. And it says, this was to fulfill. And when we read the word this, we look back to the direct antecedent of that word and that was the fact that He had told them not to make Him known. That fact, the desire to conceal Himself, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. We've already seen Um, Chapter 1 verse 22, chapter 2 verse 5, chapter 2 verse 17, chapter 4 verse 14, chapter 8 verse 17, five different times Matthew has already alluded to the Old Testament, because this is big for his readers. Remember what the prophets had said, and so we're going to move into this prophecy, verses 18 through 21. I want to take this prophecy, and I want to unpack it. And like Isaiah and like Matthew, just simply display the infinite glories of Christ that are found in these verses. And I've broken it down into four headings. Uh, We'll look at two of them today and two next week. The first one is the identity of Christ. We're going to answer the question, who is the Christ based on this prophecy? Who is He? The second one, is the character of Christ. In other words, what kind of qualities does this prophecy attribute to Jesus? His character. What kind of a person would He be? The third one that we'll look at next week is the mission of the Christ. What specific assignment has Jesus been given according to this prophecy? And then the last one is the conclusion concerning the Christ. And we'll answer the question: At what judgment should we arrive based on this prophecy? Now that we know this is true, how should we respond? So, the identity of the Christ, the character of the Christ, the mission of the Christ, and the conclusion concerning the Christ. The first one is the identity of Christ. In verse 18, the identity of the Christ: What or who is Jesus? Who is this Christ, this Messiah? based on what Isaiah said in this prophecy from Isaiah 42. Well, the first thing we see in verse 18 is that he is God's chosen servant. He's God's chosen servant. Look at verse 18. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen. This, of course, is God the Father speaking in first person through the prophet Isaiah. He's God's chosen servant. we we'll begin with the word Servant. A servant, as we know, is one who does the will of another. Is one who acts, not of his own volition, but submits to the the will of others. Or submits to receiving orders from someone else and does what someone else tells them to do. That's a servant. Now, this is difficult for us to grasp because we have Jesus. You know, we're, we're, we're Orthodox. We're Trinitarian. We believe that Jesus is God. And so we have Jesus the eternal Son of God, co-equal with God, one in essence with God, and yet he takes a position of submission. He receives orders. He does what he's told, while at the same time being equal with God. One of the best passages to explain this comes from Philippians chapter 2. This is not an uh, an unknown passage to us, but it, it explains very well what it meant for Jesus to submit to the Father. Listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul commands, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we read there that Jesus, the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, emptied Himself, and it explains exactly what that means. That doesn't mean He he gave up His deity. He was never any less God than He has ever been, but rather he made himself nothing. He remained fully God while taking on a second nature and taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man. So he comes emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, remaining fully God, and at the same time, fully man. And then it describes what it means that he was a servant, he was obedient. Obedient all the way to death on a cross. Hebrews tells us that He learned obedience through what He suffered. That doesn't mean that there was some knowledge that He didn't have. It meant He's never had to obey before, ever. And so as He comes as a human being, He takes on this second nature and He learns what it means to take orders and to be obedient to the Father. This is who... Jesus is as our Lord. He is the servant of God. And Matthew capitalizes on that in this section. He focuses on the servanthood of God. There was no display of celebrity in Jesus' ministry. When situations got hairy, He left. When the crowd got thick, He got on a boat and He left. He wasn't there to to make a display of Himself. He was humbling Himself as a servant. And if we go back to what Paul just said, we learn that we are to mimic this. Paul said, have this mind among yourselves. That is, we are to serve others. We are to take the low road. We take the back seat. We we empty ourselves. We refuse to seek our own agenda. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross. We die to ourselves. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. that's what we are to do. We mimic Christ and His servanthood. But, knowing that Jesus was a servant is not enough. Because He wasn't just any servant. He's God's servant. Notice we read, whom I have chosen. He is my servant, God says. He's chosen by God. That means He was selected. He was God's choice. The Father decided on the Son as the one who would serve in this capacity. And this follows the biblical order that we always see when God uses someone. No person in Scripture and in life ever decides in and of themselves to just be used of God. That's not for you to decide. If you don't believe that, ask the Apostle Paul and he'll tell you, I wasn't looking to be used of God. God comes and that you must be first chosen by God to the office that He designates. And that goes for the prophets in the Old Testament. No one was allowed to just stand up and say, I believe I will speak for God. The priests, no one stood up and said, you know, I believe that I will be born of the tribe of Levi. And that goes for the kings. No one ever just decided I will be king. And that goes today for pastors, for fathers, for mothers, for whatever role you play where God is using you, you don't just decide, hey, I'm going to be that. And the Lord Jesus was the same. He bowed to the will of the Father and was chosen as the servant. And we can be sure when we read this that Jesus was the perfect servant or He would not have been chosen. The Father did not and would not settle for second best. He was perfect because He was fully God. He eternally knew the Father. He was intimately acquainted with the Father's desires. He has eternally striven to please the Father in all that He does. As the incarnation of the glory of the Father, His sole purpose is to magnify the glory of the Father. So Jesus is the perfect servant. You've probably said it yourself. If you want it done right, You have to do it yourself. And so God, who better to work for the glory of God and serve the purposes of God than one who is co-equal with God. Had there been a better servant, God would have chosen a better servant, but there wasn't because Jesus was the perfect servant. And there stands forth none so perfectly suited none so glorious in majesty, none so lofty in ability to serve the eternal Godhead than the incarnate Word Himself. Jesus is and was and has always been the perfect servant of God, chosen of God. But, again, He's not just a selected helper. He is the Son of God. Therefore, He is beloved of the Father. And we read that here. Behold, My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. A servant may be selected because of their adequacy at a job, a skill, a proficiency in a certain vocation, years of experience, and they're still just a servant. They're still just a hired hand. They're not much more than a day laborer. But Jesus was and is beloved by the Father. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, and God's delight and His pleasure begins first and foremost in Himself, then God takes His most supreme pleasure and delight first and foremost in His Son. Before there was anything else in existence for God to be pleased with, there was the second person of the Trinity. There was the eternal Word, the Father's delight for His Son extends backwards into eternity and forwards into eternity. The Son is forever delighted by the Son. For the Father is forever delighted by the Son. This is even so much so that the Father's delight in other things actually only stems from His delight in the Son. Creation itself is good because it is in him, Jesus, that, we, that, that things are held together. They're, they're upheld by the Word of His power. In Him all things hold together. It is, it is from Him and to Him and through Him. Therefore, it is good to the Father. The Father's delight in us is because we have been chosen in Him before the foundation of the earth that we would be blameless in His sight. We are in Christ. We are represented represented by Christ, our federal head. Therefore, God takes pleasure in us only because He delights in His Son. We are the byproduct of the love between the Father and the Son. We've seen this pleasure once already in Matthew 3. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. When we get to chapter 17, we'll see it again at the Transfiguration, Christ glows with bright light. His glory is made manifest and the heavens open. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The Father is pleased with the Son. God the Father has always and will always look at His Son with such a pleasure and such a delight that the universe itself cannot contain it. But rather, the universe and all that is in it, as well as the redeemed from every age, come together as a gift to the Son by the Father because the Father delights in His Son. He is no purchased servant. He is the only begotten Son of the Father full of grace and truth. But not only is He a servant. Not only is He God's servant, not only is He God's chosen servant, not only is He the perfect servant, not only is He the beloved pleasure of the Father, but He is also the proclaimer of justice. Look at the next phrase. I will put My Spirit upon Him and He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. God says, I will put My Spirit upon Him. We saw this at His baptism. The heavens open. the Holy Spirit descends like a, a dove and rests on the sun. And remember, John the Baptist said that God told him that whomever you see come and my Spirit comes upon him and does not depart, that is the Messiah. That is the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And so at His baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down on the Son. What's interesting about that again, We're talking about Jesus who is fully God. Who in His earthly ministry operated under the power of the Holy Spirit just like we do. He had to be filled with the Holy Spirit in His human nature so that He could fulfill the will of the Father. Listen to this from John chapter 3. It says, For He, speaking of Jesus, whom God has sent, utters the words of God, for He, this is God the Father, gives the Spirit without measure to Christ. Jesus operated under the fullest indwelling of the power of God's Holy Spirit in His humanity and properly yielded to that Spirit at all times. Now, we have the Holy Spirit as well. Our problem is we don't yield to the Spirit. We have a sinful nature battling with the Spirit whereas Jesus did not have that sin nature. And so when the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, this was the symbol of God's pleasure. So the Holy Spirit comes and He says He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. When it says proclaim justice, that word might also be judgment or statutes or the ways, the law, the Word of God. Now this is how that funnels into justice. All of God's revelation that He has revealed of Himself to us can be specially summed up in the story of redemption or what we would call the Gospel. Everything that God has revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation is the Gospel. It is the good news of what God has done in Christ for fallen humanity for His glory. It's the Gospel. That is how God establishes justice. So God is a God of justice and justice must be served. But God is also a God of mercy. And so through this gospel story, God serves justice for His people by punishing sin at Calvary and He displays mercy by forgiving His people of their sin, so we receive mercy and justice is served. All of that is summed up in the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. This story, all that God has said, and so Jesus comes as the, the revealer, the proclaimer of that good news. He is the central focal point of the gospel story of all of redemption. It's all summed up in Jesus, and it says, Jesus will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This good news to the Gentiles, the revelation of God. To the Gentiles, Jesus will proclaim it. And again, when whenever the Jew would have read "Gentiles," they would they would kind of scratch their head and then thought, "Well, that's strange." Um, I was telling this is how I did this with Case. I asked him, "Who who is a Gentile?" And he said, "I don't know." And I said, "Point your finger up. I point your finger down. I point your finger out. I point your finger in. That's a Gentile. We are all Gentiles." And so, for a Jew to read he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, would have been strange. When for us to read it, we just think, well, of course, he proclaimed justice to the Gentiles that came to us. Now what we learn here is that anytime the Gospel is proclaimed and God's Word is rightly preached, Jesus is proclaiming justice. Jesus is proclaiming the truth of God. God's Word. God's revelation. Now then we ask the question, how, is, how has that happened? How does that take place? How is it that Jesus preaches to Gentiles? Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him? The ESV says, of whom they have never heard. But in Greek, the word of is not there. The, the, the New American Standard Bible actually writes this in a more literal translation. How are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear Him without someone preaching? Who are we to believe in if we're to be saved? It's Jesus. So how then will they call on Jesus in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in Jesus whom they've never heard? Jesus has to preach to them. And a clearer example of this is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. And He, speaking of Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Paul, writing to the Christians at Ephesus, says Jesus came and preached peace to you. Now, who preached to the Ephesian Christians? we go back to Acts 18 and 19, we see Apollos was in there. He had some bad doctrine. Then Paul finally comes in and preaches. And then Paul is writing back, these are the ones who preached the Gospel to the Ephesians, but Paul says, Jesus came and preached to you. And what we read here, and what we begin to understand is that any time, whether it be Paul's preaching or any true Gospel preaching true to God's Word, when that takes place, Jesus Himself through His Spirit comes and preaches the Word to the hearts of His people. That's why we believe preaching is such a big deal. That's why we sing one or two songs and preach for 45 minutes. Because preaching is when Jesus Himself comes and speaks to you guys and to me. I'm blessed to hear this sermon two or three times before I get here. This is Christ preaching to His people. So... Jesus is the perfectly suited, chosen servant of God the Father. He lives under the eternal supreme delight of His Father. He walks fully indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And He goes forth to proclaim the revelation of the Father to those near and far. This is the identity of the Messiah that Isaiah was speaking about between six and seven hundred years before the birth of Jesus. That's His identity. Secondly, and this one's shorter, the character of Christ. The question is, what kind of qualities does this prophecy attribute to Jesus? Well, first it says, He will not quarrel. So He was not quarrelsome. This is literally to wrangle or to wrestle, to contend or dispute, to fight. So Jesus doesn't come on the scene and stand around with His chest stuck out looking for a theological debate. He doesn't stick around to start trouble. We saw that in verse 15. When, when trouble started, He left. He does this several other times. He doesn't just show up and try to start fights. He was always right. He knew when anybody was wrong. But He didn't stand around saying, well, actually, well, actually this wasn't the type of man He was. He was not quarrelsome. He wasn't a troublemaker. He was a peacemaker as much as possible. When we read this, we cannot get confused and believe that Jesus was some sort of a, a pacifist or, or a wimp. He was not a wimp. He was tough when he needed to be tough, and he was gentle when he needed to be gentle. We're thinking, or we're talking about a man who grew up in a carpenter's shop six days a week for... Close to 30 years of his life he spent in a wood shop with no chop saw, no miter saw, no planer, no bandsaw. Just his hands working day after day after day and his hands were probably scarred and and bruised and his his forearms were probably ripped and, and, and muscled. He was a man's man. If he wanted to start a fight, he could have started a fight, but he didn't. And this is the epitome of gentle. He had the strength. But he didn't display it. He wasn't quarrelsome. He wasn't a troublemaker. And then he wasn't loud. It says he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This is just this is shouting. He didn't make big scenes when he traveled. Unlike many of today's so-called street preachers, which I'm not against street preaching at all. I think it should be done properly. But he doesn't just go out and try to, to start trouble, to draw a crowd, to make a scene. He was a calm man. He wasn't boisterous and rowdy. People didn't dread when His friends would come to to town. And as far as we know, the loudest He ever got was when He hung on the cross and He cried out to His Father, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Other than that, He was a, a quiet and a calm man. In verse 20, we see that He was tender and merciful says a bruised reed he will not break. And we've talked about this before. This is just a a bent or a broken piece of river grass. As good as dead, unable to hold itself up. Somebody stepped on it. Something has happened. This piece of grass would have needed very delicate, very special, constant care and attention. It's just a piece of grass though. It's just a piece of river grass and it's probably here symbolic of, of someone tender in their faith, humble, in need of special attention, in need of maybe having a stake driven in the ground beside it and a string tied around it to, to hold it up till it could to hold itself up. Jesus wouldn't break that reed. He wouldn't just snap it off and say, well, it's broke, we'll just start fresh. He would nurse it. He would be that much-needed stake hammered in alongside of that piece of grass to to hold it up. So He wouldn't break a bruised reed. A smoldering wick He will not quench. This is just a a, a wick or a a part of a a lamp. It's barely lit. No no real flame coming from the wick. Just, Just barely pulsating light from a wick. Again, representative of someone in need of in need of fuel. Someone about to go out. Someone struggling. Someone crawling in their faith. And, and Jesus wouldn't pinch that wick out or clip it off and say, well, we'll just start from scratch. No, He would cup His hands around it. He would blow on it or fan it and, or give it fuel to bring it back to life. He was gentle and merciful. Jesus doesn't show unnecessary harshness to the weak and to the battered. To the meek, to the humble, to the lowly, to those he would call the little children. He, he stoops down low to show mercy and compassion and care and special attention of those we would deem unworthy. It's just too much trouble. Jesus comes and he fans him and he says, No, I think I can I can bring this one back. I can I can give this one life. So far from being a conquering warrior, king, proud with his chest stuck out and his his armor and his, his warriors arrayed for battle. Jesus' earthly ministry is one of a humble, lowly, suffering servant. He was the epitome of humility and lowliness. And so He goes about this Sabbath day and He's healing people. He's not doing it for show. He wasn't trying to gain a following. He wasn't trying to expand His entourage or expand, extend His fan base. He was simply doing good on the Sabbath. And when the Pharisees would seek to make a scene, He withdrew. When the demons sought to make Him known, He commanded them otherwise. When the people wanted to grab Him and make Him king, He slipped away. And that's what Matthew was trying to convey here through the prophet Isaiah. was Jesus' humility. He was to come first as the suffering servant, as a man of sorrows, as one acquainted with grief, as one with no comeliness or appearance that we would look on Him and be attracted to Him. And the Jews stumbled over this. In His first coming, Jesus' full identity was to be hidden from most. Although the law and the prophets spoke of Him very clearly. We can read it from the prophet Isaiah. It was clear. On the road to Emmaus, remember he's walking with his two disciples and he begins to explain to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all the things concerning himself. In John 5.39, he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of me. It was, it was clearly written of what, what kind of a man he would be, his identity, his character, and the Jews stumbled over this. But as we read it, we see Matthew lined up with Isaiah. Matthew understood what many would have missed, and what many continue to miss. So as we close, I want to ask this question. Do you know this Jesus? Before we move forward into next week, because next week begins with the word until. He's not always like this. There's coming a day when He will not be the suffering servant to us. And so, before we move forward, do you know this Jesus? Jesus, See, to, to know Him truly is to love Him. Deep, affectionate love. There's no way you can know this Savior and be captivated by this Savior and filled with this Holy Spirit without a love for Him. True salvation consists in knowing God truly and loving Him truly. And to love Him is to obey Him. It's to obey Scripture's, to, scriptures Commands to follow the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. Do you strive for that in your life? Do you go to the scriptures for your method of living? Do you go to the scriptures for your worldview? Do you go to the scriptures to guide you in your conduct at work or at school or at home or with your family or with your spouse? When you're alone and nobody else is around, do you go to the scriptures to dictate how you should live? To know Jesus is to love Him, and to love Him is to obey Him. To love Him is to strive to be like Him. Do you mimic His lifestyle? Do you watch the way He interacts and and plead with God, make me like that man because I want to be like my Savior? Do you mimic His love? Do you mimic His humility? Do you mimic His self-sacrifice every chance you get? do Do you take the opportunity to deny yourself you mimic his service and devotion to the glory of God the Father above everything else. Because to know him is to love him, and to love him is to strive to be like him. And to love Jesus is to want to be with him. So we meet with Christ in several ways. As individuals, we can meet with him through scripture and prayer. As individuals, we, or as families, we can gather with Him and meet with Him through family worship, through prayer, through singing. In corporate worship, we meet with Him through Scripture and prayer and singing and the sacraments. These are all ways that we meet with Christ and God dispenses His grace. So the question is, do you love those times? Do you hunger for the time that you get to spend with Jesus? Whether you're alone or whether you're with your family or whether you're with the church body, do you long for it and hunger for time spent with Christ because you love Him? And you love Him because you know Him? And if you do all these things, again, do you practice them out of obligation because that's just what you do? Or do you truly cherish these times because to know Him is to love Him? Do you know Him? Have you met Him? Do you speak with Him? Does He he speak back to you? Is He your rest, your pleasure, your delight? If you do, then you should consider it pure joy that you have been made privy to this knowledge, that you have been enlightened to the truth of the Lord uh, an understanding that few have had rejoice in your servant king if i ask these questions you say you know that's, that's that's not me really i mean i know about him but i don't know that i really love him you can know him today you, you just simply turn to him in repentance and faith trusting in christ god has given his son as a ransom for souls But you cannot come to Jesus and hang on to your sin. You have to lay it down. Repent and trust in Christ. Christ humbled Himself as a suffering servant to the point of death on the cross so that God's wrath would be deflected from sinners so that we could then come into a relationship with Him. So if you don't know Jesus, you can know Him today by turning from sin and calling out to Him. He's here He's preaching. He wants to meet with His people. He wants to gather people so you can can know Him today. And and, and like I said, it's good to know Him before you get to until. So, let's stand. We're going to pray. We're going to sing one more song and we'll be...